some have presented challenges to the idea of biblical inerrancy. But are any of these challenges valid? We'll find out this week on Exploring the Faith. I'm Kurt Parton, and this is Exploring the Faith, where we examine any question or issue that helps us be more faithful as followers of Jesus Christ. We want to be growing always closer to God to more deeply understand the life he's brought us into, to help and encourage our fellow believers, and to meaningfully engage the culture around us. Welcome to the discussion. Okay, so let's make sure we understand the terms we've been using. When we say scripture is divinely inspired, we mean that the human authors of the Bible were specially, supernaturally inspired by God. The Holy Spirit guided them in writing, in their own words, what God wanted them to write. You can think of it like having a divine editor guiding and changing what you're writing until what is produced is both the human author's writing and the Word of God. In this discussion, when people speak of the Bible being infallible, what they mean is that it perfectly communicates the deeper spiritual theological truth of God. When others refer to Scripture being inerrant, they mean that the Bible is completely free from factual error in everything it affirms as true. The last few weeks, we've been talking about why we should trust the Bible as divinely inspired, as theologically infallible, and as factually inerrant, or free from error. But there are Christians who accept the Bible as divinely inspired, and who trust the Bible as theologically infallible, but who don't believe the Bible is free from all error, including factual errors concerning details of history or science. These Christians would reject belief in the inerrancy of Scripture. We've already discussed why, when we carefully consider the view that the Bible can contain blatant factual error and still somehow be spiritually infallible, that this is actually irrational and ultimately incoherent. If you want to hear more about that, you can check out the episode from June 9th, Can the Bible be Infallible Without Being Error-Free? But these people do have challenges for the biblical inerrancy view, and we need to consider these challenges. When you listen to people who believe in biblical inerrancy, it's not uncommon to hear them stipulate that it's the original manuscripts, or what we often call the autographs, that are inerrant. And it's just as common to hear the challenge of those who reject inerrancy. Yeah, but we no longer have these supposedly inerrant original manuscripts. So what good does that do us now? Hmm, is this as devastating a problem for inerrancy as the critics seem to think? Let's take a closer look at this challenge. I first need to point out that we don't have the original manuscript of any piece of literature from antiquity. All we have are copies. I don't want anyone to think that the manuscript evidence for the Bible is somehow deficient. Actually, the New Testament is the most well-attested literature we have from antiquity. We went over this a few weeks ago. Underlying this challenge is a bit of confusion that's actually quite easy to clarify. Consider this question. Is it the physical materials 
constituting the original manuscripts, which we no longer have, is that what we're claiming is inerrant? Are we saying the papyrus was somehow error-free? No, of course not. It's not as if we're seeking to venerate the physical manuscripts as some kind of holy relics. So what are we claiming is inerrant? The text of the original manuscripts. It's what was written on these autographs that's inerrant, not the manuscripts themselves. So the question isn't, do we have the original manuscripts? The question is, do we still have the same text or wording that was written on the original manuscripts? Before answering that, let's make sure we understand the implications. This is another case where these Christians who reject inerrancy are arguing too much. According to their view, Scripture doesn't need to be inerrant, but it is divinely inspired and theologically infallible. But what exactly are they claiming is inspired and infallible? The written Scriptures. So what do we need today if we want to read the inspired, infallible Scriptures? We need translations that faithfully relay the inspired and infallible message of Scripture as originally written. Do you see the problem here? If, as these critics claim, we somehow no longer have the original inerrant text, simply because we don't have the original manuscripts, then we also no longer have the original inspired text, or the original infallible text. You can't have it both ways. Both sides are just as dependent on a faithfully preserved text that conveys the original reading of Scripture. I don't know any Christian critic of inerrancy who would accept the idea of an unreliable Bible that isn't divinely inspired or infallible. Once again, we see special pleading, different standards being used, with these believers being perfectly willing to accept the Bible as divinely inspired and theologically infallible, despite the fact that we don't have the original manuscripts, but then they insist that Scripture can't be inerrant because we don't have the original manuscripts. Thankfully, we can be very secure in our reading of Scripture. As we saw in a previous episode, less than 1% of the New Testament is in any doubt as to its original reading. Most of these uncertain passages involve very minor differences in wording, and there are no Christian teachings that rely on this minuscule group of passages. Then why do those who believe in biblical inerrancy make this caveat about the original manuscripts being inerrant? This is simply to remind all of us, it's the original text that's inspired, infallible, and inerrant. This keeps us from designating one translation, such as the King James Version or the ESV, as the standard. It keeps us doing the hard work of faithfully translating the original text so that we can be reading the inspired, infallible, and inerrant scriptures. So, Is the lack of original manuscripts a problem for an inerrant text? Not at all. No more so than it's a problem for an inspired or infallible text. To the extent our Bibles faithfully translate the original wording of Scripture, to that same extent we confidently read today the inspired, infallible, and inerrant message that was written down by the biblical authors. Here's another challenge that we hear often. It's said that biblical inerrancy can't stand as a viable concept because it, quote, dies the death of a thousand qualifications. 
Supposedly, proponents of biblical inerrancy have to add such an extensive list of clarifications and qualifications to their understanding of inerrancy that it becomes useless as a workable theological proposition. If one has to carefully clarify and define what they even mean when they use the word inerrancy, then the concept is at best meaningless and possibly even intrinsically incoherent. This can sound like a persuasive argument. That is, until one actually considers the implications of such a standard. Do we really want to establish an expectation that a single word communicating a theological concept must, one, be immediately understood the same exact way by everyone with no needed clarification or further defining, two, must be without any need of detailed clarification regarding what this theological concept actually is and what it is not, and three, must enjoy complete and total uniformity in the way its adherents understand every nuance and implication of this concept. Should we then conclude that any theological proposition that lacks this kind of simplicity, that must often be defined, that requires and results in complex theological exploration and debate, and which proponents understand in varying ways, should be assumed to have disqualified itself from serious consideration, having died the death of a thousand qualifications worthy of being laughingly dismissed. If this is the case, then these same critics of biblical inerrancy should be equally dismissive of, let's say, the concept of the Trinity. After all, do we not have to be careful that people understand what we mean and what we do not mean by the word Trinity? Are there not seemingly endless qualifications and clarifications as to what's included in the Orthodox Christian belief in the Trinity and what is absolutely not included? In fact, isn't a great deal of early church history consumed with clarifying these very complex details? How many heresies are simply getting one of these details wrong? Misunderstanding the deity of Christ. Misunderstanding the humanity of Christ misunderstanding the nature of Christ, etc., etc. Aren't there still frequent debates concerning some nuanced implication of the triune nature of God? Shouldn't all these myriad clarifications as to the nature of God inspire the same giggles and rolled eyes as detailed descriptions and clarifications of biblical inerrancy apparently do? And what about all the books and articles written about what we actually mean by the word gospel or the word kingdom? Should we reject these ideas as impossibly complex as well? Or could this simply be another case of special pleading, fervently defending some cherished biblical teachings despite the need for wading into theological complexity and detailed clarifications, but then rejecting other, possibly not so cherished, at least by some, theological concept because it's just too complex and requires too many detailed clarifications. Of course, some words do begin to lose their meaning over time. The simple word Christian began to so lack clarity that we felt the need to clarify what we mean by Christian, as in evangelical Christian. But now the word evangelical is taking on more political and cultural connotations, and we're in the middle of a debate over whether this word has lost its usefulness. 
Many have tended toward the use of the phrase triune God rather than Trinity because it's more precise and clear. But none of these adjustments in terminology require the rejection of the concept being communicated. The question is how well does this word communicate today, the concept believed? Not a sarcastic ridiculing of the ability of the word in question to communicate at all, and a conclusion that the concept itself is somehow invalid because it's just too complex. If we listen closely to these discussions concerning inerrancy, it begins to sound as if some are trying to force this view into a kind of artificial catch-22. When someone describes the inerrancy of Scripture in a simple, easy-to-understand way, such as, the Bible is absolutely true and accurate in everything it affirms, the response is often a condescending derision at such a childish folk belief in a magic book that somehow floated out of heaven, or challenges regarding particularly difficult passages. But when those who believe in biblical inerrancy get into details of the way Scripture is divinely inspired, and what inerrancy actually means and doesn't mean, the critics throw up their arms and complain, why do you need all these clarifications? Why can't you state your view simply? It reminds me a bit of the children Jesus described who complained, we played the flute for you, but you didn't dance. We sang a lament for you, but you didn't mourn. When we look a bit more closely at these so-called thousand qualifications of biblical inerrancy, we find, first, that they're not that numerous, and next, that they actually make good practical sense. For instance, as we already talked about, those who believe in inerrancy will usually qualify that it's the original readings that are inspired and inerrant, not any one particular translation. To the extent we're confident that a particular reading faithfully conveys the original reading, then we can be confident the text is inspired, infallible, and inerrant. This also allows us to acknowledge the few places where biblical passages are less certain. The fact that we can't be dogmatic about whether the mark of the beast in Revelation 13.18 is 6.6.6 or 6.16 simply does not call into question the inerrancy of Jesus' words to Nicodemus in John 3. Ironically, when we deal with such differing passages with precision and nuance, the critics try to restrict us to the very simplistic, magic book from heaven view that they wish to reject. Other clarifications are also just common sense. The Bible includes statements from Satan and false prophets. While these statements are recorded faithfully, they're obviously not intended to be read as statements of truth. To clarify, this makes perfect sense. Different genres of scripture are studied with differing expectations regarding precision and literalness. In some biblical reports, precise numbers are used. In other accounts in scripture, numbers may be rounded off. These don't constitute contradictions in scripture any more than they would today. The Bible includes descriptive language, such as metaphors and hyperbole. These are to be understood as they were intended, as metaphors and hyperbole. All of these are simple and needed common-sense clarifications. Now, it is true that scholars may sometimes write about these clarifications using dense academic language, and this can seem overly complicated to ordinary Christians reading their work. That might cause us to think the whole concept is hopelessly complex. 
but this actually has more to do with the way scholars communicate than the concepts themselves. For comparison, try reading through the early church creeds and writings all about the issues concerning the Trinity. They're not exactly what we would call simple. Yet this doesn't cause us to reject belief in the Trinity. When we stop and see the practical nature of these clarifications of biblical inerrancy, it's actually the rejection of such necessary qualifications that seems silly and childish. Are we actually suggesting that no one should clarify that by saying the Bible is without error in what it affirms is true, that this doesn't include the words of demons? Is it really that strange for us to qualify that by saying all Scripture is divinely inspired and inerrant, we're not saying the peculiar wording of the King James Version is inerrant, but only the original Greek and Hebrew readings, which we must endeavor to accurately translate? Is it really so odd to point out that the Bible includes many different kinds of literature, that we must take into account these genres of Scripture, and that we shouldn't expect the same level of precision in the poetry of the Psalms as we would of the lists in First Chronicles. And that rounding off numbers doesn't constitute error or contradiction. Is it really that hard for the critics to see the need for these kinds of common-sense qualifications? If you're confronted with someone making this claim that inerrancy has died the death of a thousand qualifications, I'd encourage you to ask them for the exact standard that they're using for evaluating what qualifications are excessive and what are not, and then see if they apply this standard consistently to the theological words and the concepts that they teach. Are they always able to avoid the need to define, or clarify, or qualify? Do they ever need to bring out the nuances of what they believe? Are they holding the view of biblical inerrancy to a standard that they can't consistently follow? and shouldn't even try to. And then, of course, you could ask them to explain their own view of Scripture. Is it divinely inspired? Really, how exactly is Scripture inspired by God? Do they believe the Bible is infallible? And just what do they mean by infallible anyway? May not be quite as simple to explain all of this and eliminate areas of confusion or erroneous conclusions without a few clarifications and qualifications. But some will scoff, biblical inerrancy? That's a modern concept. It's not the view of the ancient church. And it's true that the historical church didn't use the word inerrancy until fairly recent times. But it's also true that, just like Jesus insisting that not even one word of Scripture can be altered, Christians throughout the history of the church have believed the Bible to be absolutely trustworthy and authoritative, completely without error in everything that Scripture affirms as true. Whatever word that was used for this, this has been the historical view of the church. We can find countless quotes, such as this one from John Calvin. Speaking of the Bible, he wrote, The Word of God is pure and without any mixture of fraud and deceit like silver which is well-refined and purified from all its dross. They may not have specified that Scripture is without error, including factual details of history and science, because the irrational idea that a factually erroneous Bible can still be somehow divinely inspired and theologically infallible, that is actually the modern novelty. 
until fairly recent times, we don't see anything like this expressed by the ancient church in any words. No, inerrancy is simply a word that was utilized to describe what faithful Christians have always believed about the Bible throughout the history of the church. We follow the example of our Lord, Jesus Christ, who relied on Scripture as the inspired Word of God, absolutely trustworthy and perfect, whose teaching is completely free from anything erroneous or untrue. The Bible is divinely inspired, it's theologically infallible, and it is inerrant, completely free from error in everything it affirms as true. This is what Christians have always believed. Join us next time as we continue Exploring the Faith. Thank you for listening. If you enjoy this podcast, please rate it and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. This will help others find us. You can find a transcript of this episode, along with any show notes, at exploringthefaith.com. Feel free to post a comment and join the discussion. We also welcome any questions or issues that you'd like us to explore. You can submit these at exploringthefaith.com. Exploring the Faith is sponsored by The Orchard, a Jesus-following church that meets in Rancho Cordova, California, and also in weekly interactive online studies. This is my home church where I'm blessed to serve as teaching pastor. You can find out more about The Orchard at orchardonline.org.